Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. And Heavenly Father, we do pray for help. We do pray that you would reveal great things to us this morning. We pray that you would overcome every obstacle uh, that prevents us from hearing what you would have us say, what you would say to us, and how you would have us change. And we ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if, as you sit down, you could be uh, turning back to uh, Revelation chapter 10. That's page 1,240 in the church Bibles. There's also a handout amongst the papers you were given on the way in, so you might u- want to use that to, to follow along as well. Now, I want to begin this morning by painting something of a picture for you. And at the centre of this picture, there is a, a cowering figure Uh, perhaps with her arms over her head, desperately trying to protect herself. Around the figure, there are people laughing, talking to one another. Some of them are wandering away. Uh, It is, I guess, a a distressing picture. Uh, It could be a a scene of playground bullying, perhaps. Uh, It could be a scene of racially motivated violence. Uh, but no, actually, the, the figure in this picture actually represents, the, represents Christianity in the UK in 2011. And around the cowering figure of Christianity in 2011, the world stands mocking and laughing. Or perhaps they're so tired and bored of laughing and mocking that they've wandered away, dismissing it all as a sad irrelevance. And that is often how it feels, uh, being a Christian in this country, isn't it? Think of the situation that you're going to be going into tomorrow morning, perhaps the only Christian there. Uh, Think of the tiny, tiny proportion of the population confessing Jesus as Lord in this country today. Think of the Church of England, weak and compromised. We might well start feeling vulnerable and crushed when we think of things like that. Well, if we are, then God has a message for us. It's in the book of Revelation. And it's written on a scroll. And this is the morning when we finally get to find out what's on that scroll. Now, you may have found our reading this morning long and difficult. And if you're new this morning, or otherwise new to the book of Revelation, the chances are you found it, frankly, bizarre. But I do hope that whoever you are, whoever we are, we're going to find this morning that the basic message from God in this scroll to the churches is very simple. It is that we are to engage in costly prophecy and witness. Uh, The witness is going to provoke suffering and persecution. But our endurance through all that is going to be vindicated in the end. Now, those of us who have been around uh, for some time might well be saying to ourselves at this point, well, I already knew that. But I hope we're also going to see this morning that there are two things which make the message as it's put in Revelation Uh, chapters 10 11 stand out the first of those is the very long and elaborate build-up that we've had to the revelation of the contents of this scroll perhaps the message was more important than we thought and the second is going to be the surprise in the contents of the scroll about how witness and suffering actually work together Now, we're going to look at uh, this under two main headings this morning. Firstly, uh, being prepared to hear the scroll. And then secondly, understanding the message of the scroll, ready for the final trumpet. So first then, 
being prepared to hear the scroll. And we have had an extraordinary long build-up to the opening of this scroll. We were first introduced to it back in chapter 5 of Revelation. It was in the hands of the one who sat on the throne of heaven. It was a scroll sealed with seven seals, and only the risen Jesus, the lamb who was slain, proved himself worthy to open them. One by one, those seals have been opened. Then at last, last week, we saw the final seal open, chapter 8, verse 1. When the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. In other words, even in heaven, they're holding their breath in anticipation at this point. But still there was a delay in finding out the message of the scroll, as we were hearing and seeing last week. Passing on the message of the scroll was delayed further by the sounding of six trumpet blasts from heaven. These were experienced on the earth as natural disasters, pain and death. They were God's wake-up call to a world world with its hands over its ears. But the startling thing that we saw last time was that not even death, not even death was enough to shake people into changing their minds about God. Look at chapter 9, verse 20, just before the passage we're looking at today. Chapter 9, verse 20. The rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. Something else is going to be needed. And today, we find out what it is. But even when we get to chapter 10, the build-up continues. There is, of course, the task of transferring the scroll to John, who is to put the scroll's content into practice on the earth. This very significant event demands a very special messenger. In this case, it's a, as you can see, a gigantic angel with one foot in the sea and one foot on the earth. I guess that represents the angel's concern for the the whole world, preparing the way for a message which concerns the whole world. But the size of the angel means he's also able to reach into heaven to take the scroll and to pass it to John. Uh, Incidentally, this helps us to see, I think, why the scroll is called a, a little scroll at this point. It's not a different scroll, I'm pretty sure, to the one that we've been shown before. Uh, You can see down in in verse 8 of chapter 10 that it is just called the scroll there. It's just that in in, in the picture of the gigantic angel, if the scroll were at the same scale, I guess it would be something like the size of the Isle of Wight. And uh, Pastor John and Port John would be squashed flat by it. So then, a little scroll, but it's the same scroll that we've been talking about all along. Finally now, we're promised, verse 6, there will be no more delay. And at last, John is going to have the scroll in his hands. And at last, we too can begin the process of understanding the message of the scroll, ready for the final trumpet. But to help us to understand the significance of this scroll, I'm going to delay looking at it now, uh, just for a little bit longer. I want us to see the context in which the scroll is relevant. And for that, we need to look ahead to what happens after the contents of the scroll are revealed here, here to the final trumpet in in chapter 11, and that's verses 15 through to 19. Just look at those briefly with me. When the seventh trumpet sounds, we're taken to a point in the future where, verse 15, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. In other words, the seventh trumpet here is going to herald the final judgment of the world. The time has come, verse 18, for judging the dead, rewarding the servants of the Lord, the prophets, and for destroying those 
who destroy the earth. Now, that's going to be very helpful to us, I think, because we've got to, that sets a marker in place so that we can see the context here. And with that marker in place, we can hopefully see that the contents of the scroll are very likely to be about the in-between times, before the completion of the seven trumpets. And that's confirmed by the details in the chapters we're going to look at this morning. Uh, in this symbolic time of the vision, the incomplete or in-between time is represented by a broken seven. Okay, so we've had seven trumpets Now we get a broken seven, a seven, if you like, snapped in two. What is a seven snapped in two? Well, it's three and a half. And you can see the three and a half mentioned in our passage. You can see it there in verses nine and 11, three and a half days. Now you can work out if you're good at maths, uh, quick at maths, three and a half years, three and a half years is 42 months, uh, which is the time mentioned in verse two of chapter 11. It's also roughly... 1,260 days, the time mentioned in verse 3. So that's the context here. But what is the message for John and the churches in these in-between times, these incomplete times? Well, the first thing is it will be a mixed message, a bittersweet message, we might say. Take a look at chapter 10 and verses 9 and 10 with me. Now, John almost has his hands on the scroll, and we might have hoped at this point for, for something a little different to what we find here, something more straightforward perhaps. John could perhaps just, you know, just take the scroll at this point and read it to us. Uh, but no, he has to take it and eat it. It's a good job at this point that it turned out to be a little scroll. And just as the angel promised in his mouth, it is as sweet as honey. But in his stomach, it turns sour. Mince pies do the same for me. Um, you probably didn't need to know that, though. Now, we shall see, I think, that the scroll is sweet because it tells of the plan of God. It glorifies God by showing how the world is going to be made right in the end. But it is, nonetheless, bitter. A bitter message to proclaim because of the persecution it will provoke. But let's see that's spelled out in detail first, that the prophecy... Uh, John and the churches are called to undertake will be vulnerable yet invincible. Vulnerable yet invincible. Notice first that John here is being set up as a prophet, like the prophet Ezekiel before him, has eaten a scroll that is both sweet and sour. And just as it was for Ezekiel before him, eating the scroll identifies him with its divine message. It becomes a, a part of him, if you like. And the first thing that John is asked to do by God, his God to do, this is chapter 10 and verse 11, is not surprisingly, prophesy. Prophesy about the whole world, says the Lord. Every people, nation, tongue, and king, prophesy again. In other words, prophesy the same message that got you into trouble before, John, and is why you've been stuck on that little island in the middle of the Mediterranean. But before he does that, John is, uh, you can see this at the beginning of chapter 11, John is given a read and he's told to to go and measure the temple of heaven and count the people there. It's yet another bizarre moment. And we could imagine John holding this read in his hand with a puzzled look on his face and thinking, why? But measurable, measurable spaces are safe spaces. In other words, by saying, do not measure the outer court here, God is saying... Be warned. 
That's where the Gentiles are, but the, the nations are going to be trampling. And that's where you're going, John. And those are the people you're going to be prophesying about. Be warned. It's going to be ugly out there. Now, we can well imagine John, John's heart sinking in trepidation at this point. But he's immediately given some reassurance. In this task of prophecy, he is not going to be alone. The Lord is going to empower two witnesses, verse 3. Now, this is more like it. This is rather like the moment in the film I saw last week, Mission Impossible 4, where the heroes are getting themselves ready for their next assignment, gathering together their weapons and gadgets and stuffing them into bags. Well, look at how these witnesses have been equipped. They can breathe fire, verse 5. Verse 6, they can shut up the sky and strike the earth with plagues. They sound like very handy people to have on your side. Now, just like uh, last week, we're going to ask first what we can pick up from these images that's relatively clear and obvious and simple. The big picture, if you like. And only then we're going to think about some of the the detail, what the details add to that. So what's the the big picture here at the beginning of the scroll? The basic message seems to be that 42 months of vulnerability trampled by the nations will overlap with 1,260 days of God-empowered prophecy. On the one hand, what John is asked to do is not a safe activity. It's going to take place in hostile territory. There might be safety near the altar of God, but there's deep danger in the outer court. And that's where the prophecy is to take place. But on the other, on the other hand, God is providing ample resources to make that prophecy powerful and effective. Now, the details here confirm who the witnesses are and tell us why their prophecy is going to be so powerful and give us a few hints about its content. We know from earlier in the book of Revelation that a lampstand represents a church, a local church, a light in the darkness. To have two of them means that their witness is going to be valid according to the terms of Old Testament law. And these are going to be undimming lamps in a dark world thanks to the unending supply of oil from those two olive trees that are mentioned there. The fire from their mouths reminds us that their prophecy has a divine origin and works with divine power. The ability to stop the rain and strike the earth with plagues suggests the witnesses are being sent to prophesy in the same spirit as Elijah and Moses, who were empowered to do those things in the Old Testament. That also suggests, like Moses and Elijah, they're to warn the world about coming judgment. But notice verse 3 as well. They're to do all this wearing sackcloth. That is, they are to do this wearing the clothing of the humble and repentant. So the message so far is that about churches being witnesses. Churches engaged in humble prophecy that makes them vulnerable, yes, but is also invincible. But there's more to say. These witnesses are also going to be crushed, yet conquering. Look with me at uh, chapter 11, verses 7 to 13. What's the consequences for for, for the witnesses for prophesying like this? Well, you can see it for yourself that it's not going to be good. It is indeed hard to say anything positive being by attacked by a beast from the abyss, isn't it? It's a struggle to see the plus side of being overwhelmed by such a demonic monster and, and killed. Is there anything, in fact, what good one could say about lying dead in the street? 
How could anyone relish verses 9 and 10 here, that this time when the whole world will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who lived on the earth. And I guess it's here that we're tasting the bitterness of the scroll most acutely. But remember, this is a bitter, sweet message. And there's more to say. This is not the end. Once again, the power of God intervenes, verse 11. This time, breathing life back into the dead witnesses. And just look at how much that terrifies those who killed the witnesses. If God is able to do this, they must be thinking, then perhaps their warning of judgment was true after all. And I'd like you at this point to to compare verse 13 here in chapter 11 back with chapter 9, verse 20, which we looked at um, earlier and last week as well. Chapter 9, verse 20, describe what happened after the sixth trumpet blast when a a third of humanity was killed. And we were saying last last week, not even that was enough to rouse a world with its hands firmly clasped over its ears. The rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent. But look at the difference here in chapter 11, verse 13. When people die now, the rest of mankind is terrified. And they come to give glory to the God of heaven. And in the book of Revelation, that is always a positive thing. These are are people who really have changed their minds at last. So the big picture here is is a, a time of apparent defeat for the witnesses. And yet followed by victory. Their message of judgment has provoked the world to violence against them. But one moment they're dead on the ground, their enemies gloating over their bodies. The next, they're up again, provoking terror in the enemies of God. A terror that's finally able to wake them up to the truth. Now what the details here do is connect the experience that the experience of the witnesses to the death and resurrection of Jesus. You can see that quite explicitly in verse 8. The witnesses die just as Jesus died, and for very similar reasons. They lie dead for three and a half days, which I think is supposed to remind us of the three days that Jesus lay dead before he was resurrected. And all of which suggests that we should be connected to their resurrection in verse 11 with his resurrection. So that's what's on the scroll, in summary anyway. We're going to see many of these things expanded in the weeks to come. We're going to see much more of that beast from the abyss in verse 7. And we're going to hear and see much, much more about the great city in verse 8. But for the moment, this is what John needs to hear and see and needs to pass on to the churches of his day. It is a bittersweet message of vulnerability, yet invincibility. Of being crushed, yet in the end, being all-conquering. Well, the question is, how should that work? It's all very well experiencing the vision, isn't it? To experience what John did, hearing the message, and even seeing it like this. What about living the message? And this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time on this morning. Living the message in the world we know. So how in the end does this relate to the world we know? Why is this being shown to us? 
After all, this is supposed to be for our benefit, not our, not our confusion. Well, it's intended to help us, I think, to see, to see behind mere appearances. And as I put on the handout, this is about seeing the world and the future with fresh eyes. Now, how might we see the world if we didn't have this vision from Revelation chapter 11? Well, I suppose we might well go out into the world tomorrow. We might just think it's pretty normal and neutral. We'll go out and we'll see people driving to work. We might see the number of 120 bus going past. We might see parents and children walking to school. And generally speaking, it might seem all very kind of normal, unthreatening, neutral. Just lots of people going about their business. But the vision reminds us the world is not a neutral place. The vision uncovers the truth again about the world's deep hostility to God. It's deep hostility consequently to those who speak in his name. It also uncovers the truth about the future when such opposition will be ended by God just like that in a flash. Therefore, we do not go out tomorrow under any illusions about the world we live in. Now we've seen that the vision addresses the churches when they're feeling unsure or nervous about the task of prophecy, helping them to show its divine power. I wonder how might we feel about the task that we're being given by God if we didn't have this vision? Well, I suspect we might be very unclear about it. We might dither around trying this or that. But the vision reminds us the task of the churches is witness. It is prophecy. And the vision uncovers the power of it, the God-given mandate for it. The vision uncovers something of the message we are to proclaim, and it's clear warning of future judgment. And it also uncovers something of the manner in which the prophecy is made. It's done with great personal repentance and humility. We're to be dressed in sackcloth. And yet it's to be done with great confidence in the God who empowers it. And so that's the task we dedicate ourselves to. We've also seen that the vision addresses the churches when they're feeling crushed by persecution, helping them to know the true outcome in the end. I wonder, how might we feel about actually doing prophecy like this if we didn't have this vision? Well, of course, of course we'd feel extremely hesitant about it. No one likes being crushed. And it's hard to see what being crushed like this is going to achieve. But the vision reminds us, it is the persecuted who live in the end. It is the persecutors who will perish It also uncovers something else quite extraordinary. For me, this is the most remarkable new thing I've learned from the vision over this last week. The surprising new thing here is that the suffering of persecution can in the end bring people who were previously stubbornly unrepentant to change their minds and give glory to the God of heaven. Now, we've seen that three things are necessary for for that to happen. Uh, The first is, is hearing this clear prophecy Uh, the warning of judgment. The second is seeing Christians persecuted for their witness. 
And the third is seeing them endure that persecution and then be touched by the resurrection power of Jesus. Now, we might wonder at this point, when exactly does all that happen? In the, in the, in the space and time of the vision, it, it happens as, as these people are personally resurrected. It's, it's presented as a future thing. But I'm also pretty sure that as John would want us to be able to work out as we move from the, from the vision, as we move to our, from the vision to our everyday experience of, of time and history, this vindication can also happen before that. It can happen as people see the truth and hope of resurrection written on the faces of suffering and persecuted Christians. So if you were to go, to go out tomorrow and to witness faithfully, and let's suppose that provokes a hostile response, as it may well do if you are doing it faithfully. Perhaps it provokes a barbed comment, or perhaps it damages a friendship. Perhaps it even results in the loss of a job. We can say now that that would not just be a nasty side effect of the faithful witness. That's how it would feel at the time, of course. But the truth is that it may well be part of how that faithful witness works. If we face those things with humble patience, with the hope of resurrection written all over our actions, then it may well be that which makes the witness hit home. We may not know how or when. We, never, may, we may never actually see it happen. But through such costly witness, through such resurrection-driven endurance, even the most hostile people are brought to change their minds and bring glory to the God of heaven. Richard Balcom uh, puts it like this in his very little, excellent, excellent little book on uh, Revelation. I'll put this quote on the handout. The content of the scroll is not that faithful Christians are to suffer martyrdom or that their martyrdom will be their victory. These things are already clear. They're already known. The new revelation is that their faithful witness and death is to be instrumental in the conversion of the nations of the world. And the more we think about that, the more that we realize that that was very much the experience of the early church. What's more, this is something that the suffering church in the world today is having to confront and relearn all the time. Think of our brothers and sisters in Nigeria at the moment. For them, being faithful in witness may indeed result in actual death, just as was the case in the early church. But when others see them going through that, enduring that, the hope of resurrection written over their lives, well, the gospel spreads. But this should also make all the difference for Christians in the UK feeling vulnerable or crushed today. Let me finish by taking you back to that cowering figure that I began with, the cowering figure of Christianity in the UK in 2011, the, the culture around us gloating over our apparent failure. We might well, I was saying, feel vulnerable and crushed in that situation. We might well feel that speaking out boldly in a situation like that could only make things worse. If we did that, we might be thinking we wouldn't be the cowering figure, we'd be the dead figure. The situation would be like that of uh, verse 10 of Revelation 11, the world around us gloating over us, delighted that they've finally shut us up for good. And we might feel that speaking out boldly would be utterly futile. 
that there's no way that what we can say can, can get through to people and change their minds. But the scroll is telling us, do not be deceived by appearances. That is not the complete picture. Take heart from the contents of the scroll given by God to John. The truth, as the Apostle Paul also discovered, is that as we are given over to death, the true life is revealed in our mortal bodies. When our response to suffering and persecution is driven by the hope of resurrection, the resurrection shows. And that, that is enough to change people's minds. Well, let's pray. The survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Our Heavenly Father, we do confess that we feel uh, vulnerable in this task of witness, and very often we'll stand on the threshold of going out into a hostile world, uncertain about doing it. We thank you for reminding us this morning that uh, it's true, that indeed it is not a safe place in which to go. But But what happens there may well serve to turn people's hearts and minds to glorify you. So we pray that you would embolden us this morning and give us hope and comfort for the future. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.